The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Los Angeles has finally opened its museums after more than a year. When New York's galleries have been open since August, what took California so long? I talked to Joy Finkel about LA's slow emergence from lockdown. Also this week, D.B. Berkman tells us about his new book, Art Sleeves, a trawl through 40 years of artist design record covers. And in this week's Work of the Week, as Scottish museums reopen after a long lockdown, Kirsty Hazard talks to us about an image of Grace Jones in the V&A Dundee's exhibition, Night Fever, Designing Club Culture. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up for our monthly Art Market Eye newsletter, featuring the latest news and opinion from our art market experts. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the homepage. And while you're there, you can also sign up for a range of other newsletters, including our daily email bulletin and our book club. Now, while other parts of the world have either opened their museums or had sporadic lockdowns and reopenings, cultural institutions in Los Angeles had remained firmly closed until this month. Now, though, most are welcoming visitors again in strictly controlled numbers and with familiar restrictions, of course. Among the key attractions in town is the Made in LA Biennial at the Hammer Museum and Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens, which has been installed since last summer but is only now gaining an audience. I spoke to Jory Finkel, a regular contributor to the art newspaper and the New York Times, about LA's slow emergence from hibernation. Jory, why is it that California has taken so long to open its museums? Yeah, it has taken a long time for California museums to reopen, museums in Los Angeles in particular. So there was a moment in the fall when the numbers got better in San Francisco, COVID numbers got better in San Francisco and San Francisco museums reopened briefly two to four weeks and then had to close again. I don't know which is better, opening for a month um, or not opening at all. Uh, But in the case of LA, the COVID numbers have um, kept us in what they call the purple tier. Governor Newsom has created a tier system and in order for museums to reopen, they had to move out of the purple tier in that county, meaning that county's metrics the number of COVID infections per day um, had to reach a certain level. And we just didn't reach that level um, until recently. So by by March, we got the word that museums could reopen. And that was exactly a year after they closed, like so many others across the world. Yep. And, and so basically they opened in, uh, and not all of them are even open yet. So we have a case where LACMA reopened as soon as it could. I think it was the first major museum here to reopen. The Hammer and the Huntington reopened soon after that. MOCA is still closed. It's not opening until early June. The Getty Center is still closed, and they haven't given their reopening date yet. But we expect, uh, I, I think it even says on their website, likely to be late May. Is there any explanation as to why those uh, museums are opening later than the others? Because you'd think they'd had enough time to prepare, wouldn't you? You know, I, I do. I think they're taking, in, in the case of MOCA, I've actually, I, I did a big interview with Klaus Biesenbach for W Magazine, and I can tell you he's one of the most careful people I've met. He actually went to medical school before he entered 
the art field. And, um, and, and I think he's proceeding very cautiously, very slowly. The museum is taking its direction from its director, so to speak. But besides individual decisions or collective decisions, my gut is that LACMA and the Hammer had shows already installed, ready to go. And that made a difference. LACMA's um, NARA survey has been installed for almost a year. The Hammer made in LA was installed this past summer. So if you have your shows already installed in the hopes that LA museums would reopen, and yet they haven't month after month after month, then the moment you get that word, uh, you make everything else happen. Right. So um, can you tell me a bit about the debates around this? Because there's, there are current debates in the UK, for instance, where commercial galleries are open, uh, but museums aren't, and elsewhere in the world too. Because is it right that in California too, you've had situations where restaurants and bars can open outside, nail salons can open, etc., etc., but museums are still remain closed? Uh, correct. Really, this the past six months, we've seen a retail open to some degree, maybe 25% capacity or 50% capacity, but retail has been open to some degree, while the museums have not been able to open at all. Outdoors only was the key phrase. So that left us in this crazy situation where LACMA could run its bookstore, but not open a gallery. Well, its bookstore is now in the galleries, actually, because of its renovation uh, and expansion. Um, But in many cases, bookstores are much smaller spaces, much more crowded spaces than museum galleries um, that have great circulation systems, humidity controls, all the things you would want, really, from an indoor space in the time of COVID. So has there been any art to look at? Anything outside, for instance? Yeah, I think the big outside destination exhibition has been Desert X, which happens every two years in Palm Springs area. And this year, I think people were especially desperate to go, grateful to go, because it opened in March. It was off schedule, but it opened in March before the museums here open. And it's a smaller show than usual, uh, maybe 12 artworks, but really thoughtful and even more meaningful when you're this uh, hungry for art. And I think this year's edition that was guest curated by Cesar Garcia was really powerful. The piece that you've probably seen already because it's all over Instagram is Nicholas Gallinin's Indian Land. um, That is a big, big sign modeled after the Hollywood sign. But some of the other pieces are really worth the visit. Uh, Eduardo Sarabia did a maze this triangular structure that you can walk in and originally was supposed to in the center have performances or maybe a musician or a drum circle, but now it's become a meditative space. So you lose something and you gain something. So let's talk about some exhibitions, shall we? So so tell me, you know, you, you've had a year without going to museums. What have you been seeing? Yeah, I have to tell you, a year without museums is a long time. Um, I mean, I feel like I've been starved for art and I drag my kids to the UCLA sculpture gardens because they're outside and you can see, you know, the Jean Arp sculpture or uh, Lipschitz sculpture. Um, so we're discovering that, you know, the treasures in our own backyard, so to speak. It, it made me think actually of the AIDS project, Day Without Art. Remember when a day without art was was a major symbolic gesture 
to commemorate all the people we lost from AIDS. Right. Um, and now we've had a year without art. So, yeah, it's been great to get back into the museums and back into the galleries slowly. The commercial galleries have been open to different degrees over the last six months. And now, you know, one of the biggest shows I haven't seen yet is the Amy Sherald show at Hauser & Wirth. Um, people are talking about that, of course. Um, and the uh, Ligia Pape show that just opened at Hauser & Wirth LA space as well. Um, and so I'm going to get to see those next week. At LACMA, the NARA show um, was fun to see. It, it even felt more textured, I think, because I've been starved for art, to see even NARA, even someone who travels and translates so well um, into all different cultures, seeing NARA's paintings in person, you could feel the texture. And then there was a really smart show at LACMA, drawing mainly on the permanent collection, called Not I, Throwing Voices, curated by Jose Luis Blandet. And it's a show about ventriloquism um, in art throughout the ages with really interesting, funny juxtapositions. Just a very smart, witty show about having a voice, losing a voice, having authority, projecting authority. And it was a great show. Great. Let's talk about Made in LA because it's, in a way, I feel like this is sort of emblematic of so much of this because... Your review in the current issue of the art newspaper, you point out that this show's been installed for a very long time. And then also a lot of the work was made, one, before the pandemic and two, before the Black Lives Matter protests really kicked off. So tell us about that and tell us, you know, does, does the show feel still relevant? Because if, you're, if it's a biennial, it has to have its finger on the pulse, right? And the Hammer Biennial is known for being very, very contemporary, very of the moment, often showing a lot of artists who don't even have representation in galleries yet. That wasn't the case so much this year. I have to say this year's show, um, a lot of the artists do have gallery representation, and that may say something about how many more galleries there are in L.A., um, picking up artists along the way. But still, very, very much, yeah, so that was my big question, Ben, was does the show feel current? Does it feel urgent? And how can it, considering it was mainly organized in 2019, installed in the summer of 2020, and it opened in April 2021. So Made in LA 2020 is part of its title even. So so that that was my driving question, really, in seeing the show. And I was really surprised at how current and relevant the show feels. You know, an easy example is that there's been a lot of interest in the market in portrait painting by Black artists. That Black portraiture is a really hot collecting category right now. Um, and you see it in the show in the form of paintings by Mr. Wash, um, the formerly incarcerated artist. And also Brendan Landers, who I really loved. So that's one example. What I felt was more subtle is that there's an undercurrent of anxiety running through the show. In, in particular, in the paintings, there were really powerful paintings by women artists mainly. Uh, Jill Milady and Katja Saib had just terrific paintings in the show. Um, and they were creepy paintings <laughs> um, in a way that felt really right for today's moment. It reminds us that artists are often the early warning systems of things to come in our culture. There's a sense of sort of portentousness about these works, you mean? I think so. And then you have to ask the question, how much of that do we bring to the galleries? Because even just going to a museum these days can 
carry with it more anxiety than usual as, you know, you wash your hands for the third time. Right, yeah. I mean, um, Saib's paintings particularly marked you, didn't they? And your reviews describe very powerfully their effect on you. Yeah, I think I described her paintings as the revelation of the show. One of the things that I really like is that there's a little bit of violence to some of the brushstroke. And often this is violence not in the background, but violence on the faces. Um, Even in some cases, there's this equation or identification of paint and makeup. So you have a really rough little slash of red on the lips of her subject. And it's these the more subtle gestures that I think really moved me in her works. And of course, there's, you know, with biennials so often among the kind of landmark works can be participatory works. And I know there's examples of works in this show that were meant to be participatory, but now can't be because because of the COVID restrictions, right? Right. So there's a major installation by Nicola L., the Paris-born artist who had lived in L.A. and died uh, before the show took place, died a couple years ago. A major installation of her uh, furry room, um, a recreation of this purple box where you're supposed to be able to insert your hands into these sleeves on the outside and actually uh, enter the box in that way. And you could also enter the box walk. Well, you can't enter it in any which way now. And so that has changed completely. That has become a fossil of what it used to be. It is there in an archival way. You cannot interact with it. That's so strange, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, it's it's not only at the Hammer, it's at the Huntington. And, and, and is it right, they've sort of done something a bit like Ralph Rugoff did with the last Venice Biennale in the sense that you've got a certain set of works by the artist in one venue and then another set of works in the in the alternative venue. Exactly. And they left it up to the artists. I mean, the curators worked with the artists. So it's not always the same. Sometimes it's bigger pieces at the Hammer and the smaller pieces at the Huntington. Sometimes, in the case of Monica Mojoli, it's um, more archival work at the Huntington, but also video that doesn't appear. So they really, they mixed it up. But yes, it appears in two, the show has two venues simultaneously. Right. Is that a standard practice for the Hammer Biennial in the sense that, you know, is, have they done this before they have shared venues? That's a really good question. They have, from the beginning, tried to get out into the community in different ways. Sometimes that means more of a public art component. The year that Laurie Furstenberg, who founded LAX Art, co-curated it. LAX was involved. So they have used other venues before, not two main venues in quite this way. I mean, it's really curious, isn't it? Because obviously they didn't plan this for emerging from the pandemic. But it's kind of neat in a way that you've got the Hammer and the Huntington, which are such sort of emblematic kind of institutions in their own fields to a certain degree and the Huntington for me when I think of the Huntington I think of the Blue Boy by Gainsborough I don't think about contemporary art so tell me how it works in that space right well they do have more contemporary holdings that you might not be familiar with they do go into the 21st century but I think the artists also were really interested in interacting with the Huntington's collection and you see a few artists doing that in interesting ways For example, one of the artists, Buck Ellison, placed his photographs that are really about white privilege in a kind of New England prep school way. He placed those photographs in these American rooms next to the mahogany furniture. I mean, it really... So so the artists are attracted to that. The Huntington has been doing interventions by contemporary artists for a while now. Um, They had a great, great show where uh, Ricky Swallow and Leslie Vance inserted their own work into the permanent collection. 
Right. So I wonder if visiting the Huntington, you feel what I feel a very keen sense of ahead of the museums opening here in, in the UK, which is I feel like I've taken my museums for granted to a certain extent. I've taken it for granted that I can drop into the National Gallery and for five minutes and see the Bacchus and Ariadne by Tisch. And I've taken it for granted that I can drop into the Tate whenever I want. I feel like I'm never going to do that again, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. The idea that we can just visit some of our favourite artists at any point. Um, also, I think that LACMA undergoing this major, major uh, renovation where you know, half of the campus has been bulldozed, uh, has been demolished. It triggered a lot for a lot of people. And for those of us who are not on the anti-Zoomther side, there are people who are just opposed to this new building. But for for those of us who can see um, that there might be something really compelling coming along, um, it's still strange because uh, the Amundsen galleries, that's where you would go when you, you know, needed your fix. Right, that's right. So, look, I mean, you've brought it up, so let's talk about it a little bit because it's, again, you know, we talk about emblematic institutions. LACMA is this, you know, it's a, a sort of encyclopedic institution. It's, it's you know, enshrined in the very art that's been made by Ed Ruscher, for instance. It's such a major institution. There is a complete redesign by Peter Zumter and, and, and it's caused an enormous controversy, isn't it? It's, it's about reduction of space, about the appropriate nature of the of the, of the galleries themselves and so so tell us a bit about that what's the feeling in LA right now you know I have to say there there has been controversy there has been criticism but a lot more of that has played out in the press I feel than in conversations among the people I know um a lot of the people I know are taking a kind of wait and see you know hoping for the best um the people who spoke out on behalf of the Peter Zumther where they were actually excited for it we're kind of doxxed on social media. Is that the right word? Yeah. But Diana Thader, for example, she spoke out on Facebook saying that she thinks this is a great thing. She has installed shows in the old buildings and said they had to go, that she you couldn't work as an artist. You couldn't work in those old buildings. So she spoke out on behalf of the Zimter and she got such an intense reaction against her post that she went off Facebook because of it. Is there any sense in which a period away from the museums can, in a way, make LA start again. You know, in this sense that we are all sort of in, as you said, like, you know, in desperate to go back to our museums. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm desperate to be, to be reacquainted with those spaces. Is, is there a sense in which this whole LACMA dispute can somehow be a bit becalmed by that and people can sort of reset a bit? Yeah, I think it's becalmed a bit because those buildings are gone now. <laughs> so I think there was a kind of last you know, that, that people seeing more and more of the plans and, and seeing the problems with the plans, that there was this kind of last minute sense of urgency. Let's do something before the demolition. Well, those buildings are gone now. Um, it is a construction site. You can see the beginnings of the foundations for the Zoomter building. So I do think we're past the height of that controversy. But, but there's also this interesting thing where, you know, we all know that coming back to museums is not coming back to the museums the way they were, you know, that there is a new normal for all of us. And it may be that the more and more we emerge from this pandemic together, um, that LA museums are kind of changing behind the scenes, um, that it won't be until 2024 that we actually have the Peter Zumter building if it stays on schedule. But later this year, we will have on the LACMA campus, um, the new Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. 
So already when people start going back this fall to museums, there's an, another player in town, another game in town, and the hammer has been renovating behind the scenes. Major, major renovation. It's almost a $200 million capital campaign, but some of that includes endowment costs. Um, but it is a major renovation that's uh, progressed over many years with Michael Maltzen, the architect who has uh, helped the hammer enter the 21st century and they already have new office spaces. By the end of this year, they'll have a new bookstore and a new works on paper gallery. And their biggest change coming the following year will be a new facade, an entrance lobby on Wilshire. So basically, the museum will have a different dialogue with the street level, um, a different presence in the neighborhood. And they will take over the bank building next door to have even more space. So yeah, when we come out of this, the museums will have physically changed as well. So... After this period of absence, then it's it's an exciting moment actually for LA. It's an, it, the the scene is is burgeoning. We've heard for a long time about how the market, you know, there's all these tests of the market. So so would you say that LA feels pretty dynamic? I think it does. I feel like you know we're not back in full swing, but things are happening. To me, the great surprise was how much was being bought and sold over the last twelve months, sight unseen. And you know, my friends who are art consultants have been busy. Well, that's interesting. Okay, Jory, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Ben. Made in LA is at the Hammer Museum and the Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens until the 1st of August. And you can read Jory's review of the show in the new print edition of the art newspaper on the website or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. In a moment, we'll hear about artist record sleeves and talk about Grace Jones and 1980s New York nightclubs. But first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. A devastating second wave of COVID-19 in India has inundated its hospitals and depleted its vital resources of medical oxygen. On Thursday alone, we learned that there were officially close to 380,000 new cases and 3,645 new deaths, though experts say the reality is even worse. Yet, as Kabir Jalla writes, amid this widespread crisis, construction on the grand redevelopment of Delhi's historic parliament buildings, known as the Central Vista, continues apace. Described by critics as a vanity project of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and costing £2 billion, it appears unencumbered by Delhi's strict lockdown enforced since the 19th of April. Although Delhi officials ordered for all construction work to be halted unless workers were living on site, an official letter published by the Indian digital news site Scroll reveals that the Department of Central Public Works, which is overseeing the project, wrote to the Delhi police insisting that workers be allowed to be ferried to the construction site and that 180 movement passes were issued by New Delhi's Deputy Commissioner of Police for the workers under the Essential Services category. The world's most expensive living artist, Jeff Koons, will now be represented exclusively worldwide by Pace Gallery, having left David Zwerner and Gagosian, the galleries that have sold his work for years. As Anna Brady reports, the American artist, whose rabbit sold for $91.1 million, including fees, in 2019, appears to have had something of a professional epiphany during the pandemic. Sometimes, professionally, in life, we can find ourselves at a crossroads, Koons said in a statement. Going through the last year or so, and having the opportunity to reflect on what I would like to achieve with my life's work in order to bring it to its fullest potential, I've decided that a change in the environment in which my work is viewed and supported would be a positive thing at this time. 
around 23,000 works of art from the collection of the late Samsung Electronics chairman Lee Kun-hee are due to be donated to museums and institutions across South Korea to help pay a massive inheritance tax bill of 12 trillion won, or $10.8 billion. As Gareth Harris reports, in a deal agreed with Korean tax officials, works by Claude Monet, Marc Chagall and Salvador Dali, among others, will be donated to the National Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art. The museum, which runs four sites across South Korea, plans to stage an exhibition entitled Masterpieces of Lee Kun-hee's Collection later this year. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This May, discover 2021 in New York, Christie's innovative sale format to spotlight the art of the 20th and 21st centuries and in turn usher in a new era for the art world. The reimagined 20th century evening sale on the 13th of May features Monet, Picasso, Rothko and Warhol, radicals of their day who had a lasting impact on the art being created today. Viewing begins on the 1st of May by appointment only at Christie's Galleries in Rockefeller Centre. In the meantime, explore the highlights through the enhanced virtual viewing rooms and related features on christies.com slash 20 21. Welcome back. A reminder, you can listen to all the episodes of our sister podcast, A Brush With, a series of in-depth conversations with leading artists on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Now, for many decades, artists have designed record covers, most famously perhaps Andy Warhol's work for the Velvet Underground and Peter Blake and Jan Howarth's for the Beatles in the 60s. But Rizzoli has just published a book, Art Sleeves, which looks at artists' designs for albums, cassettes and CDs over the past 40 years. I spoke to the book's author, D.B. Berkman. D.B., in the intro to the book, you very much give the impression that you fell in love with album covers at a very early age. Very true. I think I've always been a very visual, stimulated person. And the cover was almost more important to me than what was on the record. And it's interesting that you say that you bought several albums where the musical content actually wasn't much cop just because they actually were really great visual statements. Yeah, my collection was definitely dodgy because of that. Okay, well, let's th- I mean, there's quite a lot of collections of album cover books out there. But the, the difference between your book and lots of others is that you very much focused in on artists making album covers. So this isn't so much a pie to the great album designers, the, the graphic artists so much. So tell me a bit about how you've gone about choosing who goes in this book. Well, there, there even have been books recently, very impressive, massive books that are album art books. But what they tried to do was show the entire history of album art, which is really not possible to put in one book. It started in the 1930s, I believe. So I constrained myself to a 1980 to 2020 timeframe because 1980 was very important, both in the music industry, but also graphically. Uh, It's when sort of the DIY punk culture had permeated into the music business and bands and you know people who were doing it themselves were able to control what was on the cover that's right and and so from from that point onwards that's a sort of jumping off point but but also that it's crucial that like for instance I had no idea how many fine artists as we would call them have have made album covers you know there's a vast array and you you must have been on an exhaustive search in order to do this 
Yeah, and, and I still am. It's ex- extraordinary that I keep discovering new ones that I didn't know when we put the book to bed. It was like, oh, man, I wish I could have included that. But it, it lends to the idea of a volume two, which is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so should we talk about some of the album covers? One of the things I did want to say is that I like the way that you've kind of co-opted some of the great graphic artists as artists in their own right. So Peter Saville is in the book. Why did you want to do that? Well, for me, I think I was more influenced and more emotionally moved by graphic designers initially than I was by so-called fine artists. I remember, you know, first seeing those factory record releases by Peter Saville and just like either either not understanding what they were about uh, but also being so moved by them. I was moved by Peter Saville's factory records as much as I was first moved by seeing the Rothkos in the Tate. Yeah, that's fascinating. That I mean, because I, you know, I've had that experience too with album covers that you do absolutely treat them as as sort of venerated objects don't you when you when you love an album cover it's it's that thing of listening to a record holding the thing in your hands and kind of pouring over it even as you hear the music and it becoming one entity the music plus the cover becomes a sort of singular thing exactly exactly and it is sad that there's a now two generations that have grown up without that sort of experience i mean there is you know a massive resurgence of people who are buying records. Uh, I heard that uh, some weird statistic, Urban Outfitters sells more vinyl in America than any other outlet, but a lot of the people that are buying those records don't even have a record player. They're just buying them as a fan of the artist, whoever it is, Billie Eilish or whatever, and they're sticking them on their wall, which is exactly (laughs) what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, and, and interestingly, I think... Speaking to that, many of the designs in this book are very lavishly produced um, special editions, aren't they? So, for instance, the Vinyl Factory in the UK, who you focus in on, have cho- who've chosen to work with artists on producing records, which are very much artworks as much as they are audio content. Yeah, I think that particular model really appeals to the older sort of person who grew up maybe with vinyl and now a reissued version of a classic record, but with an elaborated, they do some beautiful stuff with Massive Attack. Yeah, it's an incredible company. Yeah, and then you have people like Christian Markley actually making the production of vinyl and the production of the sleeves into an artwork. He had that extraordinary exhibition, I think it was in 2015 at White Cube, where there there was a mobile production unit which was actually churning out records and the sleeves in the gallery yeah. so basically eff- effectively making it a performative artwork which was happening in the space totally incredible i wish i'd seen that yeah they were recording performances something like 15 different performances over a couple of months and they were live screen printing the sleeves as they were recording yeah amazing production um let's talk about some of the uh, the fine artists that you feature one of the big surprises to me an artist that, whose work I knew very well but had no idea that she was doing album covers was Talbot Albuck. And Talbot Albuck has produced this extraordinary body of album covers, hasn't she? Yes, um, she is a real fan of music and particularly sort of left-field music um, and works with the extraordinary selection of artists that she is usually friends with. So it's very much a collaborative 
effort. Um, and I finally got to meet her a couple of days ago with uh, one of the members of the Z's, which is a band that she's worked with a few times. Um, so that was really fun. Uh, I actually brought my son along to meet her as well, because so, we're both big fans. He's a big fan of the Z's. I'm a big fan of Tauba. So it was, it was fun. <laughs> I mean, one of the things about Tauba's designs is that you realise how her artistic language is actually perfect for record covers. And that, that, that isn't necessarily always the case. But with her, it, it very much is that she's got this kind of almost graphic intensity to the way she creates objects and paintings. And therefore, that really translates beautifully to the record cover, doesn't it? Yeah, amazing. She's even creating her own fonts. I mean, she's like next level graphic designer for sure. Let's talk about some of the big names that have made album covers now, because it's, I hadn't realised, for instance, that Gerhard Richter had done an album cover, that Robert Rauschenberg had done one for Talking Heads. Was this was this sort of with well known within the sort of the field of um, music design, or did you really have to kind of seek these ones out? It depends. The Talking Heads record was a massive record. I think they pressed 50,000 of those at the time, and it was a big hit record anyway. But that edition sold out very quickly, and they went on to make more copies without that sort of, I don't know how to describe it. It's basically three pinwheels with translucent uh, screen prints on them and you can move the wheel around and it creates different patterns. Um, that one I definitely knew about. I didn't know how many sleeves Gerhard Richter had done uh, and we only showed one because I wanted to give it a lot of love on the page so we blew it up big. But there's several. There's probably, if I remember right, there was five we were considering. So he's, he's also another person. Most of them, if I remember right, are on classical records but i'm not 100 percent sure yeah i mean one of the things that again comes through from the book is that there are some artists who have direct connections to the artists themselves you mentioned tauber being friends with those artists and then you've got the black flag albums by raymond pettibon so there are sort of you know it's almost like the artists are part of that milieu but others it seems like it's a sort of mutual admiration society it's less of a sort of direct connection you know did you have to sort of really look into the the kind of culture around these productions basically and 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 seek these connections it was random some i knew about and some i didn't know how to like i would discover a record and i'd have to go to the gallery that represented the artist but also then track down the non-existing label that put out the record back in the 80s so it was it was a quite convoluted but a fun if not difficult process it took five years of of actual work but i've been thinking about it and collecting ideas for about 10 years i've got images of you sort of in your apartment surrounded by album covers left right and center is that is that quite is that an accurate picture mm, yeah yeah i'm looking at this moment db is showing me a, a wall full of albums basically <laughs> uh this is my man cave my basement uh which is part disco uh so these these records are all kind of dance I was a DJ when I was younger, so I still have a lot of dance records. But upstairs is um, more sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, living room <laughs> collection of records. And that's where the art sleeves actually live. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of records here. I've downsized a lot over the years. I had about 6,000 albums, which in real audiophile collectors is nothing. You hear of these people that have 80,000 records and stuff. So 6,000 down to 4,000. I'm a kid. (laughs) Um, One of the things that you say in your intro is that you didn't want to discount 
those designs that were made for the post-vinyl, the first post-vinyl period, as in when cassettes and CDs came in. Did you, did you manage to find compelling designs within those formats? Yeah, there was a period when the record companies realised they could make more money from CDs uh, because they cost less to produce and um, they could reissue older records as well and people would fall for that. So they stopped producing a lot of the major labels and some of the indies too stopped producing vinyl. So these beautiful designs for the records were only produced on these little 5 by 5 CD covers. Indeed. I mean, you've mentioned that that some people, there is a sort of cult of vinyl, which means that some people are buying vinyl, even if it is just for sort of as just as purely as an image. But of course, almost everyone is is experiencing music these days, mostly through streaming and the images are little bigger than a thumbnail. Mm. So if that's the case, do you feel like there is still a sort of thriving culture or is this almost like a nostalgic project now? I think it's a bit of both. I think there is definitely a nostalgic element to this, but the young people that are absorbing the book and telling me they love the book, I don't think that's nostalgic for them. I think they're genuinely thrilled by seeing these works uh, that have not existed except as thumbnails. So yeah, I think it's a bit of both. DB, thank you so much for joining us and talking about it. Thank you so much for having me. Art Sleeves by DB Berkman is published by Rizzoli and costs $50. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. And as Scottish museums are now open, a couple of weeks ahead of their English counterparts, this week we're looking at a work in the exhibition at V&A Dundee, Night Fever Designing Club Culture. That show began at the Vitra Design Museum in Germany before the pandemic forced nightclubs to close and now, of course, takes on a new significance as many venues across the world remain shut. The exhibition includes films, posters, flyers and fashion, as well as light and music installations. But Kirsty Hazard, one of the show's curators, has chosen to focus on one of the many photographs in the show. Fulker hints his photograph of the singer and fashion model Grace Jones in the Area Nightclub in New York in 1984. You can see an image of the work on our website, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Kirsty, I imagine you would have had a wealth of images and objects to choose from in this extraordinary show, but tell us why you've chosen the one you have. I think when you're working on a show like this, yeah, exactly as you say, there's just like a plethora of really evocative objects that completely sum up what these nightclubs were about. But I think the, yeah, the one I've chosen in particular uh, really does do that. It's the the Volker Hintz uh, photograph of Grace Jones at Area. Um, dating from 1984 and uh, her with a what looks like a taxidermied lion I think Um, (laughs) classic Grace Jones at one of their themed parties when you're visiting the exhibition which I hope many people listening will be able to do when you walk into the third section which is where it sits it's one of the first things you see as you walk into the room that's great. I mean, I'm so pleased to be talking about Grace Jones because she's such a sort of towering figure in terms of nightclubs. I mean, she literally did an album called Nightclubbing. She was so associated with that New York scene. And, and to have her in area, which is one of the most iconic of all the New York nightclubs of the 80s, it seems like a particularly fitting image to have chosen. 
I think for a lot of these clubs, area in particular, there's this amazing connection between nightclubs and performance art and just actually in general this sort of amazing meeting of of creative minds whether that's from the music world the fashion world the sort of visual arts world all all coming together but I think Grace Jones and her work um and just like her her presence at area in particular just really yeah really epitomizes what area was about yeah should we talk a bit about area? Because I mean, it's an extraordinary story, really. It was it only it only existed for about five years, right? Yeah, it existed for yeah for four years between nineteen eighty three and nineteen eighty seven, and it's super interesting in terms of a story. In fact, how it sort of sets within the story that the exhibition tells, because the the chronology of the exhibition, you go from Italy in the sixties with a lot of radical Italian architects really experimenting with spaces that were. I don't know if they exactly intended for them to be ephemeral spaces, but a lot of them were, yeah, were ripped out after a couple of months or a couple of years. But Area does that deliberately, but on a much bigger budget level, and that the the owners of it deliberately intended for the the interiors to be changed every six weeks, um, so completely transformed, completely stripped out, and for for them to have like a very very specific theme that would reflect the nights that were being held on those evenings and the the photograph that we see is is from one of those evenings but yeah just completely extraordinary um people talk about it being like the the most exclusive club in new york just because it's such a strict door policy mainly because it wasn't really on anything in specific it wasn't really about who you were or how you dressed it was just like a big crowd of people outside it and the doorman would just choose people at random um who to come in so it was an exciting experience i think yeah yeah absolutely and, and you know just to give a scale of how lavish it was i read that it cost thirty thousand dollars every six weeks to refurbish it yeah and so i looked it up in today's money <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and that, that is that's more than seventy thousand dollars in today's yeah, money. So, it's, you know. it's bonkers yeah and it, i mean, Maybe it makes sense why it only lasted for four years. I guess that, that isn't really sustainable. Um, you know, it's incredible as a as a place and as a structure and a sort of like point in time. But yeah, I guess maybe not sustainable past four years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the kind of connection with art then, because it's this is really crucial. It was from reading about it, it was almost more about the art than it was about music and dancing right yeah it was hugely centered on performance art so for example like andy warhol was known for doing performance art on like certain nights yeah so i think when you go through the exhibition there's a real variety of what people think nightclubs are and what the the owners and the designers of the nightclubs were trying to sort of like pinpoint what they are as well and whether they were like social spaces and um places for yeah entertainment and music and dancing but i think with what area and in fact a lot of a lot of the italian clubs definitely in the 60s and area for sure in the 80s yeah it was really trying to push the boundaries on what nightclubs were and very much making them yes yeah, spaces to promote and celebrate um yeah performance art in particular and art installations too area and palladium and paradise garage are all known for yeah supporting artists like basquiat and and keith herring as well yeah yeah and in fact herring was very much involved in in the club wasn't he and, and in, in fact there's there's wonderful images of herring in in, in area and in making he made this amazing pyramid work that was a classic herring piece and just so again sort of really pointing to the way that that the club was was a venue for the creation of art as, as much as a gallery would have been 
For sure. And I think super interesting to consider that alongside his artistic practice and how he used the fees that he was given to paint these murals, whether it was uh, area or palladium, to fund the work he was doing elsewhere. So there's such an interesting connection between that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this image a bit more because it's it's yep. such an extraordinary <laughs> yes, picture. <laughs> um, so basically what you've got is this taxidermized lion with a ferocious roaring face and right next to it is Grace Jones sort of in its <laughs> clutches. But the, in a way, it's it's a struggle for dominance, isn't it? There's no sense in which Grace Jones is vulnerable here. Absolutely. I think it's a real power play um, between the two. And I think it's such a perfect snapshot I mean, the night was called confinement. There's actually another amazing photograph um, of there's like a, 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 I think a taxidermied rhino in the background and Grace Jones next to Dolph Lundgren, um, which gives you a sense of, yeah, as I was saying, the real like meeting of, of different, different creative people coming together. And yeah, you can just get a real sense of, yeah, the design of that club, I guess the excitement of that club the real sort of like yeah dynamic relationship between grace jones as a performer but also as like a, an attendee of of one of these evenings i think is just perfectly summed up in in that photograph yeah another thing i read about area was that they had these extraordinary invitations and in fact yeah it's my um, favorite part actually <laughs> yeah. Yeah. tell, tell yeah. us about that yeah, so basically Area is a really good example of like of, of total design, which the exhibition really explores the idea that the designers and the owners behind these clubs were wanting everything to connect together. So whether that was like the interior design, the graphic design that connected to the invitation. So each of these amazing inventive um, themes that changed every six weeks was reflected in the invites, which yeah makes it one of my favourite sections in the exhibition. For example, in the show we have like almost like imagine it's like fiberglass or some like really really delicate material that is it's an egg. So you basically you would crack the egg open and the invitation would come out. There is like a mouse trap where the invitation is hidden within uh, a mouse trap. You had to get it out, or there's like a slice of cheese as well and the invitation was like printed on the back of the like kind of what you think would be the advertising for the slice of cheese so just and I think there's definitely a reason why things like the invites were kept because nightclubs are, are such ephemeral spaces it's amazing that some of the objects survive at all because uh, yeah as we've touched upon the spaces were intended to only be there for a number of months a number of years and then were stripped out and the same for all the kind of associated materials so it must have meant something to the people that received those invites that they yeah decided to keep them for like 30 years and uh, why they've ended up in this exhibition of course it's impossible to view any nightclub scene from the 1980s in new york and indeed the art scene too without thinking of the decimation of that scene through the aids epidemic and therefore it's always seen with an element of tragedy or sort of through an elegiac lens to a certain degree can you reflect that in the show is that something you touch upon um, yeah, we I think we do very much, again, in the same section that area is in, but almost on the opposite side of the room is the nightclub Paradise Garage. It was seen as a safe space. In fact, a lot of the artists um, who were from the LGBTQ plus community who went there um, very much found it to be a, a safe space where they could socialise and like be entertained and celebrate. But if you reflect on a lot of the ephemera that's in the cases and the, the, the people that are pictured in a lot of the imagery, you, yeah, you realise that, yeah, a lot of them died during the AIDS epidemic. And I think for so many people who are involved in this scene and, and other parts um, of the exhibition, they're obviously able to 
reflect upon their memories and of their experiences in the various club scenes. But I think that one is one that's particularly lacking because those people aren't around to, yeah, to reflect on that anymore. That is definitely touched upon in, in the exhibition. This almost sort of like, I guess, like lost generation that was sort of centred around these like key sites um, in New York and, and um, in San Francisco. And of course, in, in putting on this show now inevitably there is it's we're at a moment where nightclubs are no-go zones when nightclubs are spaces for danger so does that do you think that lends an extra poignancy to the show i think the show opens at a incredibly critical time i mean the show originally was curated in 2018 when it opened at vitra but we've added to it and expanded upon it for for vna dundee and it touches upon how i think the nature of clubbing was already changing before covid19 and the various lockdowns that we've had obviously in the uk and and around the world how a lot of people's clubbing experiences is now more switching to like festivals or gigs rather than nightclubs and the impact this is having on the nighttime industry in terms of cultural institutions it's nightclubs will be the last ones to reopen and obviously at this incredibly critical moment in their history I guess because of the sort of health dangers that are are associated around being around people in sort of close confines we'd actually we chose to commission a particular project this exclusive to V&A Dundee to touch upon that so in the final section of the show again the, the sort of V&A Dundee specific section of the show we look at a bit at Scottish club culture and one of the clubs that we focus on is Sub Club, a really famous club actually in Glasgow. And we commissioned a LIDAR scan that looks at the interior of Sub Club, sort of like completely empty without people, as it's sort of like been touching upon, looks at this yeah, incredibly critical and, and poignant moment that um, nightclubs are at and the, sort of the potential future that they're, they're facing. Well, Kirsty, thank you so much for telling us about this work and the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Night Fever, Designing Club Culture, is at V&A Dundee from the 1st of May until the 9th of January next year. And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to the art newspaper on the website, click on the link at the top left of the homepage and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. We'll also be delighted if you gave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks to Henrietta Bentle and Daniela Hathaway. And of course to our guests, Jory, DB and Kirsty. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.